Good morning, everyone. So great to be here. I just it, It's neat to be part of a congregation in these recent weeks where I can see children worshiping with their parents. I don't know if any of the rest of you uh, are just blessed seeing that happen. I think of so many of our children Lord, uh, that have been uh, dedicated in this church and um, to see them doing their best to follow along with the words and to listen and see them watching adults in their lives worship God is really a, a neat blessing. Um, now, if you've been visiting here at Grace Fullerton for a few weeks, you might have a couple of questions going on right now. You might say, do they have a pastor? <laughs> Question mark. Um, and who's this guy? And um, to answer the first question... Uh, at Grace, we kind of have a shared pulpit. We have uh, two campuses, and we have preachers who kind of rotate through and work together on expositing God's Word. And then, uh, and as far as who's this guy, in moments of existential crisis, I have that same question. <laughs> so, um, but I'm, I'm actually so glad, to, regardless of what's going on in my life, that I can know this guy uh, is in Christ. And, um, and it is our desire that if you don't know the Lord, that, um, that you would hear his word today and that you would accept his offer of grace. Uh, for some of you who are church history people, you might know that this is uh, Reformation uh, week. Um, tomorrow is Reformation Day, not just Halloween and uh, the Reformation was a time where the church uh, recaptured the truth of Scripture, the five solas, uh, the Latin meaning alone, in Christ alone, by faith alone, grace alone, Scripture alone, for God's glory alone. And it's uh, my prayer that we would continue uh, in in worship and thinking together to bend our minds towards those ends today. So let me ask you to imagine something just to get us into this text. Imagine that you are part of an exiled group of Christians, that you are aliens and sojourners in the land you live in, uh, your tribe, your culture, your religious practices are other uh, outside of your community are lost people following the cultural norms of their day, the only truth that they have known, following their desires, good or bad, paying homage to their gods, maintaining the social stability of their family within their cultural network, in many cases enjoying the perceived superiority of their system, their law, their language, taking direction from the nervous system that is their culture and the cues it gives them. Cues about the treatment of women, of children, cues about sexual ethics, cues about work, about the treatment of neighbors, about violence, about justice, cues about who is in authority, what is truth, and ultimate purpose and meaning. Now, inside your Christian world, there are also a few groups there are those who are following the teachings of the scriptures and of the apostles. Those who are, while living in the world, 
trying to live quiet and peaceful lives distinct from the prevailing culture, those who are trying to honor God by faithfully conforming their lives to what God has revealed to them through Scripture and the teaching of the apostles, those who are looking for and taking opportunities to extend and share the grace given to them. And then within this Christian world, there are others, those who are teaching new things, those who see that there is some value to some of the Christian teachings, but they see that they don't fit into the culture that they now live in. Those things don't all seem relevant. They might believe that the world is in some ways a different place than the world that God reveals in the Bible. They might see a different consistent set of rules. They might see that the sun rises and sets like we see, but uh, they might interpret it differently. They may see what's good in the world and have grown to hope in and love those things. They might love a world that teaches them to indulge in appetite, not to restrain appetite. A world where those who look out for and fight most doggedly for their own interests are rewarded, while those who don't get manipulated. The tension in the religion has been a problem for some, for some time, but it seems to be growing. The strife between factions has grown, confusion has grown, and the difference between the claims of your faith and the claims of the world become blurred. You are uncertain if all that you've grown to know is actually true. You've become restless. Day to day, you go along with the rituals and routines of your community, but the words of the new teachers nag at you. They make it seem like the faith once delivered is childish, unreasonable, and uncertain. This fog, this mist that has become normal, it eats at you. And maybe you've become apathetic, tired or just used to it. And recently your church has been reading a letter from the Apostle Peter. Early on he assures you, you have everything you need for life and godliness. And he assures you that he's heard that there are false teachers and he's warning you that they are real. So what do you do? Do you wait do you revolt? Do you sound the alarm? Do you go to another church? No, the first thing you do is you wake up and you remember. This is your life. This is your life in first century Asia Minor, and it's your life in Fullerton, California in 2016. If you're like me, you don't have to imagine too far to relate to some of these things. And in today's passage, Peter tells us to remember a few things, to wake up and to remember. So please open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, as we continue our series titled, Standing Firm in the True Grace of God. Again, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And follow along as I read. 
This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, be with us as we pursue your truth. Lord, protect us from falsehood. Father, as my friend John Mark prayed for me, Lord, we want to be changed. And we pray, Father, that you would change us through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I've entitled this sermon, The Things You Should Remember, and the outline will be a simple list of the things that we should remember. Uh, because the stakes in this passage and in life are high. As in Peter's time, we are in the last days. As in Peter's time, there are false teachers and there are scoffers. And as in Peter's time, the world, the flesh, and the devil want to destroy our faith and ultimately us. And as in Peter's time, our best defense, our surest strategy is to remember the right things and double down on the truth of those things. So for those of you who are taking notes, here's some uh, categories that might help you. We have an outline that will be on the screen here. Um, these are the things you should remember. First, knowledge of God's plan and law will protect us. Second, sin's corrupting influence. And third, God will judge the ungodly. So first, dear church, let us remember the first point, the knowledge of God's plan and law will protect us. Now, before we dig into our particular passage, I think it's important to uh, kind of review a couple of uh, places where we have had uh, some of these concepts rise, particularly if you were here four weeks ago, Jackson's sermon on the authority of Scripture, where he really um, brought before us what Peter was saying about uh, recognizing that God has given us Scripture as an authority in our lives, and um, Peter even places that authority above his own eyewitness account of the transfiguration. Um, and then, uh, secondly, last week, that Randy uh, gave us this composite sketch of false teachers, and part of what they do is they simply reject the authority of um, scripture, and they introduce heresies, and they ultimately condemn themselves by it. And so, immediately on the heels of that in chapter 2, Peter issues this warning 
to Christians. Uh, and he reminds them once again of uh, the true source of knowledge, which is Scripture. And in this case, he focuses on the predictions of the prophets and the command or law of Christ. Uh, Peter introduces this passage with a characteristic phrase he uses uh, a couple of times in both First and Second Peter. He calls the church beloved. And this is to be taken as a term of endearment. Um, and it puts Peter in this fatherly role over the church. He is speaking to them as a father would speak to the children that he loves in those moments where they need good advice. He wants them to stay alert and aware of the dangers of the world and their particular circumstances. But after that, he uses this phrase, stirring you up by way of reminder. And interestingly enough, this idea of stirring up, I think, loses some of its force in, in uh, English. Um, this word is used only a few times, this phrase for stirring up, and it's used specifically in Mark and Luke when Jesus is um, being roused by his disciples when they are seeing that uh, there's this storm out at sea. So there's this storm coming. They fear for their life, so they stir him up. So it's not the, you know, just gentle wake up like, Mom, can you wake up and get us some breakfast? You know, that some of you might experience. It's more like, Mom, I've started a grease fire in the kitchen. <laughs> kind of stirring up, okay? Um, wake up! And I'm, yeah. Not that that's ever happened in my kitchen with a certain congregant, uh, <laughs> Dr. Schubert. Um, uh, but... The interesting thing is her grease fire, confirm or deny, ask her the story later, she started a grease fire making a Caesar salad in my kitchen. Um, so uh, that is a true story. <laughs> um, you can't make this stuff up. You really can't, you know. Um, but Peter wants to stir them up to rouse them uh, to be alert because there's danger out there. Um, in some ways, this whole letter has been leading up to this stirring you up um, moment. Uh, Peter's been building an argument in chapter 1. Christian, here's who you are and here's what you have. Here's the resources you need. And God has given you his word, Christian. And Christian, there are false prophets who want to lead you away. And so, given all that, wake up. It's time to be roused. Um, I'm an English teacher, and uh, I enjoy, like many Christians, uh, uh, J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And if you guys are familiar with that, um, you'll like this illustration. If you're not, just indulge me for a moment. Um, but in the second book of Lord of the Rings, Two Towers, there's this uh, part of the band, these two little hobbits named Merry and Pippin. They end up kind of stumbling into a, a forest, and they meet this creature named... Treebeard, right. I know you, and some of you are like, oh, here we go. This guy reads fantasy, right? Um, so Treebeard is kind of part tree, part man, but he's the shepherd of the forest, and he's part of this kind of ancient, powerful um, uh, group called the Ents who kind of, you know, steward uh, the creation and take care of the forest. And uh, Mary and Pippin have seen some crazy things, and they're aware of um, this kind of plot 
to take over the world, and they're even aware that things are being destroyed by this evil, uh, this who was once a good wizard who's turned evil, Saruman. And uh, you know, some people might skip through this chapter. There's not a lot of action, but there's this this point where they're trying to convince Treebeard um, that the ants need to come and, and kind of uh, take care of the situation. And so the ants go on and on, uh, acting like trees, seemingly doing nothing, um, to kind of discuss and 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 consider. And they have this kind of powwow that they call an ent moot. And the hobbits are just kind of confused and they're kind of, they don't have watches, but if they did, they would be looking at their watches. When are these guys going to be roused? And um, eventually, the ents uh, do get roused. And Treebeard says, uh, after some deliberation, he says to the hobbits, we ents do not like being roused. And we're never roused unless it is clear to us that our trees and our lives are in great danger. And that's what Peter's trying to do here. He's trying to say, hey, this is real, this is serious, and this is something for you to be keenly aware of, is that there are encroaching into the very church and into the world forces that really want to destroy you. And yet you have the protection that you need. Peter wants them to uh, be stirred up by their sincere mind, and this is a, a word that doesn't occur very often in Scripture, but it, it kind of means uh, to be tested by sunlight. The images of someone creating a pot or some pottery and holding it up to the sun to see um, if there are any weak spots in it that you could see light through that would uh, destroy the integrity of the vessel. And Peter wants them to be stirred up by way of reminder with a sincere mind to be thoughtful as children of the light, children who have knowledge of God, to be reminded of two things, the prediction of the prophets and the commandment of the Lord through the apostles. Interesting. How do these reminders help equip Christians in a world where falsehood would try to creep in? Let's consider the predictions of the prophets. You know, prophets tended to do a lot of things. We consider predictions as predominant, but they did a lot of warning and some condemnation and judging, and they did make predictions. And many of these predictions had to do with the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, the New Testament confirms over 350 predictions made in the Old Testament hundreds of years um, before uh, the advent of Christ. Now, I'm not even going to get into the exponential mathematics of the probability of any of this taking place because I, don't, I can't think of numbers that big. But the reality is that uh, prophecies uh, occurred in history, and Jesus fulfilled prof prophecy in history. And there's more historical evidence for the authenticity of New Testament, New Testament manu manuscripts as being real, legit, not made up texts. Uh, there's more evidence for their historicity than any other texts or documents ever that we have. We, you can't find um, ancient texts with more evidence, consistency, and proof. And we can go on and on and just think, okay, uh, a document, the Bible, we have these books written uh, on three different continents and three different languages by 20-some different guys over the period of 1,500, uh, 2,000 years. And to see the consistency there let alone the, the, the uh, validity of the prophecies, is amazing. 
But Peter wants the church to remember, first and foremost, the historical evidence of what God has done. He himself says in chapter 1, verse 16, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So the teachings of the apostles, now in the New Testament, uh, confirming what God predicted through the prophets in the Old Testament, is solid evidence. Okay, and performance predicts performance, right? If what God uh, says comes uh, to fruition sometime in history, of course, uh, it is justifiable that he will continue to do so. What does this all mean? It means that we can actually have knowledge of God's plan as fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Because Scripture states that God has a plan, and it did come true in history. So what is knowledge? Well, one of my favorite uh, definitions is justified true belief. Okay? And the key word here is justified. A lot of people can have belief in things and even think that those are true, but they're not actually justified. They don't have justification. But that's not true of what the prophet said. It's justifiable. You can know God's plans are true by overwhelming historical evidence in the Scripture. Scripture supplies overwhelming historical evidence. Therefore, therefore you can know that God's plan is true. The predictions of the prophets came true in Jesus, and we do not simply believe that it's true. We have justified true belief that it's true, and we can call that knowledge. Peter wants us to look at Scripture as a source. And in a world where our ears are constantly itching for new knowledge and knowledge progressing and growing, um, just like in the first century, Peter says, go back to the source, what the prophets predict. And we'll see part of what they predict is the end of all things too, the uncreation in judgment. But Peter doesn't stop there and just say, hey, you want to know what's true? Go back to what we know is true from a historical perspective. He wants them to know also to remember the commandment of our, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is kind of a tricky phrase. It's hard to know exactly what he's talking about. But the word commandment here is the most common word in the New Testament used for commandment. And it basically means this obeying the ethical or religious norms of the day. And so what Peter's most likely saying here is what would hopefully be the most obvious choice is the law of Christ, okay? Which, of course, is the fulfillment of the law, God's entire law, and Jesus himself distilled down into love God and love neighbor. So we don't just remember what happened. We also need to remember God's righteous moral standing. These things protect us. God's law protects us. And just as you can testify to God's uh, prophecy as historical evidence, you can testify to God's law as uh, evidence by looking around you. In places and communities where you see people conforming their lives to God's law, um, you see less strife, you see uh, less of the effects of sin. Okay? It doesn't make it easy, but if you look at the outcome of the lives over time of people who are obeying God's law, uh, 
you generally see, even in a broken, fallen world, something more like what God made us to be. And if you're like me, you don't have to look far to see the difference. And yet, God's law, while it protects us, doesn't save us. And this is an important point. In the same breath that uh, Peter tells us to remember the commandment of the, of the Lord, he, he does call him the Lord, but he calls him our Lord and Savior. The law uh, has several functions, but one of them is to uh, protect us, uh, but it's also to, to draw us to our Savior, Jesus Christ, the only one who has fulfilled the law, and it's our faith in him that he credits to us as righteousness. So we need to remember these things. Now, I don't need to tell you that our culture has undergone and is increasingly undergoing, I think, what many would call a moral revolution right now. And I want to remind you that most revolutions end in bloodshed. And I think we see that. But today, to speak of external righteous standards is to the prevailing culture heretical. And to affirm a traditional moral framework as we get it in the uh, scriptures is oftentimes seen uh, backwards, simplistic, and uh, at best, and oppressive uh, at worst. But we need to remember, (laughs) the knowledge we have is not invented. It's not clever. This was knowledge of God's law delivered to us by God in history. And it is a sure foundation even if our culture would want to ignore it or malign it. In recent years, I've seen firsthand people who had previously affirmed uh, the truth of God's law abandon it. Uh, My guess is some of you probably know people as well. And today, their faiths don't really look like faith at all. In these cases, they have forgotten or uh, ignored all or part of God's law, rejecting key aspects And interestingly enough, especially with regard to Christian sexual ethics. And while I'm not close enough in relationship with these people right now to know if they would openly mock uh, what the Bible says is true, what God revealed to us through Christ, I am their Facebook friends, and I know who their Facebook friends are, and so I can see mocking happening in comment threads. I can see the mockery. Of course, this is, uh, is relevant because Peter addresses this in uh, the next verse in the passage, dealing with the scoffers that scoff. And this leads us to our second point, which isn't that scoffers scoff. Peter takes that for granted, wants us to know that's going to happen. But what causes that? And that is sin's corrupting influence. So Peter introduces uh, these scoffers, and he says, they will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Really quickly, the last days, um, oftentimes we think of those as the immediate last days, but it's really the period of time between the advents of Christ. So they were in the last days, and we are in the last days. The last period of time on earth before uh, the return of Christ, that's what that means. And these guys who are uh, following their sinful desires and scoffing, I'm going to call them the mockery mockers because that is what the Greek uh, grammar gives us. 
These guys are not just scoffers who scoff, they're the mockery mockers. Um, almost to a superlative degree, they mock. And I want to be careful, too. It's, it's very easy, I think, in all cases, we're people, after all, and to separate us and them. And this is a particular kind of them. This isn't just unbelievers who are skeptics. These are people who openly mock um, the truth. Uh, they might be the false teachers coming on the heels of chapter 2. They might be people outside who kind of um, maybe know enough about Christianity but uh, ha- have not been faithful. I'm going to assume because of the context of chapter 2 that these are the same people as the false teachers. Um, and we know that they follow their own sinful desires here. Now, uh, anyone have a good mocking story from this week? I do. Um, I was uh, just in the staff lounge at Sunny Hills High School, um, and I was working on the computer doing some stuff, and then I heard someone say, hey, congratulations, Greg. And I thought, why would someone be congratulating Greg? And then, oh, yeah, Greg is from Cleveland. Oh, the Indians must be in the World Series. I'm like, hey, that's awesome. Did they get into the World Series? And then the uh, football coach says, Scott, they just won the first game of the World Series. Oh, Oh, okay. And uh, no, I actually, I said, did they get into the finals? And they're like, Scott, it's baseball. <laughs> there are no finals. It's the World Series of Baseball. Scott, do you want to know what color their costumes are? <laughs> How many field goals they got? And, you know, so anyway, luckily, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, any sort of pride about my knowledge of sports and athletics, I'm Teflon. I mean, I gave up that a long time ago. <laughs> Nothing sticks to me there. I do recognize that it probably um, excludes me from about 80% of secular male conversation, but, you know, I'll just sit back and read some Lord of the Rings, I guess. And, um, you know, just be that guy. Okay, so anyway, I was mocked. Um, but, you know, I... Certainly deserved it. Um, I should have known better than to even try. Um, but this is a different kind of mockery altogether, as you might imagine. Okay? Uh, mockery mockers, um, they are going after, uh, they're just asking questions, right? Um, we're just asking questions. We're just throwing it out there. How do you know this, right? Anyone ever met these kind of global skeptics? They kind of fold their arms and, how do you know that? Ooh, well, how do you know? that. Mm -hmm. Right? Really quickly, uh, I teach my students this. Those people don't really have to think. They just have to be, have about as much uh, intelligence as a parrot does, right? They have to say the same thing. So, if you want to be snarky, you could just turn the tables on them and say, why should I answer that question? And then they'll give you an answer. Well, how do you know that? Um, but, you know, it, it, that doesn't lead to fruitful conversation, so that's not like advice from Scripture. It's just, you know, snarky old me, okay? But it does prove a point. You can say, isn't that fun, right? And, and, uh, and generally speaking, these mockery mockers, what they're doing here is they're, they're basically asking, you know, uh, where's, where's the Lord now? He hasn't returned yet. Things are going on as they've gone on forever. Where is He now? Well, obviously... Uh, Christians have to look at past evidence, and that's what Peter points us to, to God's power and to God's purposes in the world. Um, But we have to look at what happens in the future on faith. We don't have the same empirical historical evidence about the future as we do about the past. That's kind of how historical evidence works. 
But we do have a firm foundation in, in Scripture because God has been true. So who are these mockery mockers today? Well, a lot of people would point to a group called the New Atheists. Um, and basically, they do a lot of the same kind of thing, okay? Uh, their arguments, while they do have arguments, oftentimes boil down to, this. can you believe what these people believe? They actually believe that God became a man? that he's going to come and judge the whole earth? How backwards, how scientific. So we see that, and oftentimes they adopt an intellectual superiority about that. Um, and, and that's kind of the spirit of, of these scoffers. Now, that is not to say that there aren't people that have reasonable questions, and I just want to encourage you, uh, all truth is God's truth, and do what Peter has has told us to do. Go to Scripture when you're talking with people about these things. Don't leave it in the abstract ether of what might be. Talk about what God has done and has revealed and is doing. And this is an encouragement for us to know our Scriptures uh, well, uh, to be prepared to give it a defense for our faith, as we're called to do. Peter addresses these guys, um, uh, their, their issue, but really... The deeper issue here that is worthy of our consideration is their own sin, right? I mean, they, you, Peter could have an argument with them here, uh, potentially, and, and expound it, but he gets pretty quickly to a couple of things. First of all, they, they kind of ignore uh, creation. They're, they're using the evidence of creation and God's sustaining power in creation as evidence against God, right? It reminds me of the uh, Babylon B article uh, titled, this is a cynical Christian online publication um, uh, that does a pretty good job of being satirical and funny. Um, the title of a, one article is, What Had God Ever Done to Me? Asks Man Breathing Air. Um, and, it, you know, it goes on and says, Sources confirmed Tuesday that the local freethinker Jared Olson called into question the absurd idea that God had ever done anything for him, all while inhaling oxygen and exhaling carbon dioxide in a complex process well beyond his mind's capability of understanding in its entirety. Right? And it goes on from there. So, you know, Peter, first of all, does acknowledge, okay, this isn't an argument that's hard to unseem. What you are claiming as evidence against God's intervention is actually... Uh, the reality is that God created all things by the word of his power. By one word of God's power, he created all things. And so it's not much of an argument there. But Peter recognizes more so that these guys aren't just some stoic intellectuals musing on truth. They're mocking, and the reason they're mocking is because um, of sin. Oftentimes we think that, oh, you know, our ideas lead to our behavior, but it can work both ways. Our behavior oftentimes leads to ideas. In fact, I would say it's easier for our feelings to modify our thoughts than it is for our thoughts to modify our feelings. And here we see, and we see uh, previously in the last chapter, that the false teachers, 
it wasn't like they had uh, this kind of pure intention of delivering what they thought was them arriving at truth. Things like greed and lust and sinful desire were underneath that. And so it is the case here. And this is another reason why Peter wants us to go to Scripture and uh, the authority of Scripture, the historical evidence of the prophets, but also God's law, because God's law gives us a standard to uh, name sin. We couldn't do it well apart from it. We would be wrong. So the mockers don't have a good argument, and sadly, they... um, They are denying uh, the one thing that would help them justify their sin. After all, if God is not going to judge my sin, um, then I'm going to get away with it, right? Um, If there's not a righteous, uh, objective judge who is going to determine right from wrong, if I deny that doctrine of Scripture, um, I can justify my behavior. But the reality is, and this is uh, our third point, that God is judge. And He's a righteous judge, and He will judge the ungodly. He'll judge everyone. Um, But the ungodly will suffer punishment. The mockery mockers don't question Christ's deity here. They don't question the historical circumstances of His life. They question His return in judgment. But the reality is this, that God creates the heavens and the earth and he will also uncreate it. That's the rest of this passage. We've seen it, actually. They're deliberately overlooking. It's very much like uh, in, in Romans 1.19, this idea that um, we're deliberately uh, overlooking the truth. We're looking past the truth. We have confirmation bias. We want to gather the evidence that conforms to our beliefs while overlooking or uh, glancing over all the rest of the evidence. Okay? And in this case, what seems like the best evidence is to assume, you know what? God's not going to judge the world. Look, the world goes on day by day. People live, people die. And this is not new to Peter, for surely Peter was there in Matthew 24. Uh, Starting with verse verse 36, he said, Concerning that day, this is Jesus, Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as we're in the days of Noah, so will become coming the Son of Man. For as in those days uh, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be uh, the coming of the Son of Man. You know, so what Peter knows and what Jesus knows is, sure, things seem absolutely normal until they aren't. Right? I mean, that's the story of much of the tragedy of, of individual lives. Things are going along, and then something hits. Some one-time event hits, and this is a big one. And in Christianity, we can say, wow, these are miracles, Miracles of destruction, the flood, the coming of Christ. But you know what? Science has a word for these too. Singularities. Watch enough science fiction on Netflix and you'll encounter the term. Right? Uh, Things that uh, undeniably happen but are not testable. 
and we don't know why. Creation itself um, was a singularity. You know, and, and we have to be careful. I know science is, is so wonderful in so many ways. I know some friends in here are, are scientists and do great work in, in, in exploring the world God's created and, and using that for good. But science cannot be uh, our ultimate justification of ultimate things. It just can't be because that knowledge is always changing. Uh, I mean, consider this. Who was the most famous scientist of the 20th century? That's right. Albert Einstein. Drew, good job. I know all of you are thinking it. That wasn't even a hard question. Okay? But Albert Einstein. Do you know this? At the time Albert Einstein was doing his work in the 1910s and 20s, the scientific orthodoxy was this. The universe is eternal. It's eternal. It had no beginning, have no end. It was eternal. And do you know this? According to Discover Science magazine, um, Einstein... Uh, his own equations told him that the universe could not stay static, that it had to have a beginning. It had to either expand or contract. And Einstein chose to ignore what his mathematics were telling him. Why? Because the scientific orthodoxy took it as a brute fact that the universe... This is Einstein. This is a guy who could, you know, tie the left lobe of his brain behind his back and be any of us at Jeopardy. Okay? Um, he's remarkable, right? And he overlooked the facts. He's just a man, right? And so we can't look at scientific orthodoxy as the uh, barometer of whether or not uh, what, uh, what the Bible says is true is true. Now, that doesn't mean science is of no value, right? And it doesn't mean that sci- the Bible is a scientific document written to scientists for scientific purposes. So we have to be very careful readers and exegetes of Scripture. But what we need to take away from it is that Peter is pointing to ultimate transcendent things that are true in the universe concerning a day that is coming. This is true. Christ is coming to judge. And we don't get to determine what God decrees in history, what God's law is, and we don't get to determine the circumstances under which uh, he judges us or or comes uh, at all. As C.S. Lewis puts it in his uh, essay from God in the Dock, Dogma in the Universe, he says, when any man comes into the presence of God, he will find, whether he wishes it or not, that all those things which seemed to make him so different from the men of other times, or even from his earlier self, have fallen off him. Do not let us deceive ourselves. No possible complexity which we can give to our picture of the universe can hide us from God. There will one day come a great singularity, the return of Christ. And with it, the subsequent destruction and recreation of the heavens and the earth. And your guess is as good as mine what that's going to look like. It boggles the imagination. Now, we celebrate as Christians a couple one-time events. The incarnation of Christ at Christmas, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ at Easter. And we don't tend to focus on the singularity of Christ's coming, do we? That's one that we don't focus on as much and probably for maybe not right reasons, but maybe understandable ones. Um, 
But the reality is that we are called to remember. Uh, and we're going to shift our time into remembering Christ as we take together our Lord's Supper. And I'll get to the details of how we do that in a, in a moment for those of you who are uh, new to our congregation. Um, but we are required to remember the Lord until he returns when we come to this table. Um, if you want to, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 23. In the context of 1 Corinthians, is Paul is actually dealing with divisions and strife within the church. People have been sinning against each other, um, and there are, there are difficult things going on in the church, and he addresses them, starting with um, verse 23, and he says, "'For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you.'" In other words, I receive from the Lord his true word, and I am delivering his true word to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of my new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Now, if you're in here and you think, wow, things just got really incomprehensible, um, I just have some, some news for you. God is going to judge us all God has a righteous standard. It's not good to be good enough by our standards. God's law demands moral perfection. And inasmuch as uh, you personally, like all of us, have fallen short of that moral perfection, God uh, has given you an answer in the person of Jesus Christ. God saw fit to enter into the world as a man and live the perfect life that you and I should have lived and die the death and bear the wrath of God that you and I deserved so that by his sacrifice you can be washed in his blood and made clean and right before a holy God. You are justified if Christ is your Savior. And this is why we take these elements that remember his death until he returns because these elements, as humble as they are, uh, the juice and the bread, prefigure to that day when he returns, when there will be a feast like no other feast where Christ will be with his redeemed people, reunited and where the struggles of this world and our lack of knowledge and our inconsistencies will fall away, and we will be changed by God's grace. Paul also says, therefore, uh, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then so as to eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So, uh, 
what does that mean for us in the congregation? If you're not a believer, we are so glad you're here. Um, this meal is for people who have professed faith in Christ publicly and, and who know him. If you aren't a believer, we, we want to talk to you about it. We're not intentionally trying to exclude you. We'd like you to take this opportunity as a time to reflect on and worship God as you see people who are all broken coming and receiving from God what we need. These symbols uh, are concrete symbols of what we need, and that's what you're going to be observing. Um, Paul is dealing with division in the church. If there's someone in this room that there is an ongoing division with, we would just ask that you would ask for forgiveness or uh, reconcile that in some way if you want to step out, if you want to give someone a hug. don't need to make it big in public, but um, really... He wants this to be a meal that we can come around this table together as a unified body. And so that's what he's warning us about and against. But if you're a member of grace or just attending grace and you uh, know that you are redeemed by faith alone, uh, in Christ alone, through his grace, we invite you to this table. And so if I could have our servers come up. um, And what we'll do just as you... uh, when you decide to come up, come to one of the servers. We'll have a, a glass uh, with some juice in it, and uh, the other will have uh, some bread. And if you are a GF squared congregant, gluten-free Grace Fullerton, um, there's an option for you over there, okay, on, on that side. And, um, and just what you'll do is you'll take a hunk of bread, dip it uh, in the cup, and return to your seat and uh, take take the uh, elements when you're ready. Um, and then we'll close together in worship and prayer. Also, if there are any young children in here, um, uh, parents who have your babies, come up and we'd love to pray for them as well as um, they are part of your family and we want to honor uh, that God has placed them in your family under your protection and spiritual care. So we want to pray for you too as well. So um, Jesse's going to come on up, and let's go ahead and pray for this uh, Lord's Supper. Father, we do praise you that you uh, have given us what we need for life and godliness, and what we need for life and godliness is reflected in these elements, and they are based on the truth of your scripture, and as we come together as a community that reaffirms our need for you and our faith in you, we, Lord, pray that you would give us Uh, your blessing, um, that we would know that we are known, safe, and and loved in the security of um, our God and Father through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.